1: This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Skahill, and I'm Murtaza Hossein. Maz, this is. Um, th- this has just been a horrifying month to watch everything unfold in in Palestine and. You know, I've I've hit the point where I I almost can't even look anymore uh, at at the images that are being broadcast on social media. I I also think I think anyone that has has children and is following what's happening, you just start to see your own kids' faces. And you know, I mean, one one of the videos uh, out of Gaza that really just um, I mean, I'll just say it bluntly, it made me cry. Um, like a baby was um, th- these two young boys who had been pulled from the rubble they had, they had been rescued and one was maybe 3 years old and the other was maybe 5 or 6 and they're just trembling and the 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 littler kid is is just looking he's looking at his body he's looking at his hands shaking and he sees a wound on his hand and he, he he's looking at it himself and then he's showing it to the, the older child and that child is is also trembling and and trying to comfort him and it just really on a, on a on a gut human level, it just it just brings home who who is suffering the most here. And um, you know, I mean, you, you and I both have reported on Israel's sieges of Gaza and elsewhere in Palestine over the years. And 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 so on. on one level, what we're seeing, we've seen play out. I mean, you could make an argument that it's played out for seventy five years. But but just even in the in the in the past several Israeli campaigns, um, we, we've witnessed this, uh, you know, killing of civilians, but the scale, the sort of industrial scale on which children are being killed right now is shocking to the soul. You know, and, and, and as an American, I, I look at what the White House is saying, I look at what they're doing, and as a student of American imperialism and U.S. foreign policy, nothing about Biden's position shocks me. But when you look at the fact that Israel is bombing hospitals, that Israel is uh, repeatedly bombing refugee camps, that roughly half or just under half of the reported deaths in Gaza have been children, and then you juxtapose that with the rhetoric coming out of the Biden White House and the fact that the administration is continuing to ship arms to Israel— and is refusing to say anything other than oh well, we we need, we might need a pause you know is the is the preferred term right now it makes you feel great shame i think if you're a person of conscience it it makes you feel great shame and you know the israelis have started the new york times had a piece about it this week the the israelis have started their own campaign both behind the scenes and publicly to try to shift the narrative about their killing of civilians. And and in the Times piece, they're they're reporting on how Israeli officials are increasingly starting to raise many of the episodes in which the United States has been responsible for large scale civilian deaths. Israeli officials pointing out that the U.S. Uh, dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that during World War II, uh, British warplanes uh, trying to take out a Gestapo headquarters in Copenhagen hit a school, killing more than 80 people at, um, you know, so the Israelis are are pointing to Fallujah and the campaign against ISIS and saying, you know, that no one would question uh, whether or not the Allies in World War II uh, were justified in in the kinds of bombings that they were doing uh, in an effort to uh, wipe out the Nazis, and and that civilian deaths is, is is just a part of war, and 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 to a degree, uh, I I think there is some aspect of what israel is saying that is worth mentioning but not in the way israel is doing it it's that the united states itself has a very long history of accepting large numbers of civilian deaths in order to achieve whatever stated objectives the administration in power claims are are important but what i think is i I think needs to be stated right now is that both biden and the the last democratic president before him barack obama on numerous occasions, would make claims that what separates the United States from the sort of barbarians of the world is that uh, the United States doesn't intentionally kill civilians. It doesn't want to kill civilians. This is these are regrettable episodes when the United States kills civilians. Now, of course, th- that's a complete lie if you look at U.S. history. But let's just take it on its on its uh, on its face. That has been the line from Obama during his uh, uh, many wars, during his eight years in power, and that's been Biden's position as well, that what separates the United States from countries like Russia is that we don't intend to kill civilians. We don't intend to bring terror to civilian populations. I don't see how any reasonable person can make an argument that that's what Israel is doing right now, accidentally killing civilians. Israel knows that these are crowded civilian-populated areas, and they are engaging in at times carpet bombing, dropping two thousand-pound bombs on crowded refugee camps, and many prominent international law experts have said these are these are war crimes, and that potentially charges of genocide could be leveled against Israel because of the statements of Israeli officials openly saying that um, you know civilians essentially are fair game, and so you know to conclude my my point here you know, when Biden and Obama say this is sort of what separates us from the barbarians of the world, this administration now is enthusiastically backing a scorched earth campaign while simultaneously condemning Russia for engaging in the same kind of conduct in Ukraine. And so while I'm not shocked, I'm ashamed, I'm not shocked, I I think it's important to, to, to recognize that there's something different this time around, Maz, and it seems like the the mask is entirely off right now on how how central U.S. support is for Israeli war crimes and has been for a very long time. And Joe Biden is one of the most uh, ardent supporters of the most extreme Israeli policies in American modern American political history.
2: Yeah, it seems quite clear that this campaign is not just about uh, deterring or destroying Hamas, but punishing the general population in Gaza as well, too as evidence from the statements of Israeli officials, as you said, but also the conduct of the Israeli military. As we can see very viscerally day to day, Israel has a doctrine of disproportionate retaliation to attacks by militant or terrorist groups and employed this throughout history, but never on a scale that we've seen like this before. And certainly the campaign seems to be in its early days as well, too. And roughly 10,000 people have been killed so far, the majority of them children. Tracking to the fact that Gaza's population also is mostly consists of children. So it's difficult for me to see, although I guess it will happen, that how the administration can continue defending this on a day to day basis. But what's happening, and you pointed out very accurately that they criticize Russia for this in other places, is that the US is bleeding away the moral pedestal that it claims to have uh, point to itself to dictate what's moral or not globally. And uh, I think this narrative of U.S. exceptionalism morally does not have much purchase outside very small quarters of the West and shrinking quarters of the West today, too. If you look at the reaction from countries in the global South, almost universally, there's criticism or at least great distance from the U.S. position on this subject and certainly nothing close to the blank check that the Biden administration is giving Israel at the moment.
1: You know, and and one one more point, Maz. And I I know you you spoke uh, a short while ago to a a guest in Israel, and we're we're gonna we're gonna hear from her in a moment. But just one final point I wanted to make: if you look at how this is also playing out inside of the United States, you have uh, massive demonstrations—the scale of demonstrations we haven't seen since the Iraq War—in cities across the United States, in countries. Across the world, and and I think fi- finally, right now, you're seeing the kind of mobilization that was desperately needed for decades to stand up for the Palestinian people. And in the United States, uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib of uh, of Michigan, uh, she's currently the only Palestinian American in Congress, and and there is a witch hunt against her right now. Um, I mean, they, they both Democrats and Republicans are coming for her. And uh, trying to censure her, uh, there are going to be primaries against Democrats who have called for a ceasefire. But the, the the smearing of people, who I think are on the right side of history for sure in standing up for the civilian population of of Gaza, is um, is is just utterly shameful. And um, and people should pay attention to this because if someone like Rashida Tlaib can be taken out for being the lone Palestinian American voice in the United States Congress, for having a long track record also of condemning acts of terrorism when committed uh, by groups like Hamas. I mean, Rashida Tlaib is no apologist for uh, Hamas by any stretch of the imagination. But this ultimately attacks uh, core values that the United States claims to uphold. You know, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out in the um, in the 2024 election. I know a lot of Arab Americans who have been interviewed recently are saying that they voted for Joe Biden and that they are not going to vote for him again. Donald Trump certainly is no friend of, uh, of, of Muslims or, or Arabs around the world. He spent his time in the White House, um, you know, re- engaged in racist attacks. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I, re- I really think that this is going to be a stain on Joe Biden and a stain on the on the Democrats who uh, supported this. Um, the question is if it's going to have political consequences in the form of Donald Trump winning the White House. We don't know that yet. But I do feel like we've crossed a Rubicon on the issue of Palestine, and I think a lot of people are saying there is a line in the sand right now. Either you stand up now, and and denounce this and do everything you can to stop the mass slaughter of civilians, or we're finished with you.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think we're reaching an inflection point like that as we speak. Earlier I spoke about the situation in Gaza and Israel with Marav Sanjain, an Israeli American journalist and a senior analyst on Israel-Palestine at the International Crisis Group. Marav, welcome to Intercepted.
3: Thanks, Morteza.
2: Merev, last time we spoke a few months ago, we were talking about the Israeli government's rightward lurch and protests over the country's proposed judicial reform. Now, it's a few months later, we're talking about this October 7th Hamas attack on Israel and the Israeli military response in the Gaza Strip. First of all, can you tell us how you're doing and how your family's doing in light of these events?
3: Thanks for asking. I mean, we are fine. Tel Aviv has been experiencing rocket sirens uh, pretty much daily since this started. But luckily, we have, you know, a minute and a half to get into a shelter. Luckily, we live in a place that has like a shelter down below our building. A lot of people in Tel Aviv don't have that. But uh, obviously, with kids, it's very harrowing and also just knowing what's happening just you know an hour south of me is also quite uh, horrendous but you know we're we're okay for now i'm a, you know i'm pretty concerned about the regional threats of, of a bigger war but i'm trying to to stay you know focused on the day to day
2: yeah it's pretty sobering to think the gaza is so close to tel aviv in fact and the the way life is is so different so close by can you talk a bit about the october 7th attacks and the impact on israeli society It was an event which was pretty much unprecedented in contemporary Israeli history. Can you talk how it's affected people's views of their own society, of the conflict, and of their place in the region?
3: Yeah, so it it is really hard to convey and kind of overstate just how earth-shattering a moment it has been, and that it's still going on because the bodies have not all been identified. Some people still don't know if their loved ones are dead or missing And the rescue workers continue to kind of provide uh, details and testimony about what they found and and what exactly happened on that day. So it's kind of a rolling, you know, trauma. And also it really has shattered the sense of security for Israelis all over the country, but especially, of course, those who are now uh, internally displaced, either because they were from the south and their homes were damaged and even if they wanted to go back they couldn't go back at this point but also in the north you have communities that i, I think it's pretty unprecedented for israel to have evacuated uh, i think a two dozen communities along the border with lebanon and so there you know there's uh, there's various degrees of impact for various communities but the bottom line is that israelis don't feel safe and they're also extremely angry with the government and with Netanyahu specifically and they feel like the social and kind of you know, the the contract that they had with the government and with the army to provide them with safety and security has completely been broached. And they don't know when it will be restored. And there's obviously a consensus that, you know, Hamas has to go in Israel. But I think a lot of people are realizing that Israel's tactics aren't necessarily that effective or that the price that they're going to have to pay is going to be very, very large. So I think there's, you know, a bit of a mixed sense of what exactly Israel needs to do. Um, but the, you know, the, the just the very personal security of everybody I know has been undermined. And there's also a lot of people who are carrying weapons now. I mean, men who served in the army, a lot of them are walking around with weapons. I think it's something like uh, set to triple the amount of gun owners in Israel. And, you know, people have rational and irrational kind of fears and paranoia. Um, some of them are more understood than others. You know, you can't really judge. But, you know, Israelis just feel like, like nowhere are they safe, um, not just from the rockets, but from like, they're just scared, you know, that a Palestinian's going to show up and, and try to hurt them. It's just like this. And, and the fear and the hatred is really just a uh, gone up you know in extreme and of course the other side as well which we can get into but Palestinians you know in Israel and in the West Bank are just you know being incited against um being hurled with you know violence and harassment and so the the fear and the hatred is really just upped on every level for everyone.
2: Yeah Merav I wanted to ask you more about conditions in the West Bank as well too but before I want to get into something you just mentioned you mentioned this contract that people felt that they had with the government and with the military And of course, Benjamin Netanyahu, a lot of his appeal to people was that he's a very, very security-focused prime minister. And even his campaign ads, I remember a few years ago, he talked about security and uh, be the ultimate deliverer of that. Can you talk a bit about how people's perceptions of him have changed in light of that? And I'll ask specifically because in the U.S., whenever there's a crisis, people tend to rally around the leader and rally around the flag. But it seems like in Israel, it's different. And there's a lot of criticism which has emerged as a result of the October 7th attacks of him personally.
3: Even before October 7th, there were obviously, as you mentioned, judicial, uh, there was a judicial overhaul plan, there were protests, mass protests, a lot of the security establishment, the former security establishment, the people in the army were openly protesting against Netanyahu and his government. And there was already a lot of people going on record saying they don't trust him with Israel's security. And there were warnings from within the General Security Service here that the government's policies and plans have undermined the national unity and resilience and are you know making us look weak in the eyes of our enemies? This was the kind of uh, statements that were be- being put out by top security officials in Israel. So that was already happening before October seventh. Since October seventh, it's it's um, it's just across the board that no, literally, I would say nobody in this country wants Netanyahu in his chair, and yet he's still there. And it's hard to to really overstate like how much the failure is is on him. Like people really hold him responsible. And it's not just that day, but also years and years of, I mean, he's basically been the longest serving prime minister, something like 15 years now he's been in power. And so he's shaped Israel's entire approach to the Palestinian issue in general and to Hamas specifically. There's been tons of criticism about the fact that he's basically prompt, you know, propped up Hamas and left Hamas um, to kind of be in power and be funded by Qatar while undermining the PA in order to, you know, basically just avoid any kind of dialogue, any kind of political framework or negotiation towards a solution. Um, so Israelis definitely understand that, and they definitely are are extremely angry with him, and and they believe that he will have to move from his chair. Some believe it'll happen during the war. Some think it'll happen after the war. It's kind of amazing that he's still there because really nobody trusts him. And you can also see in the way that he's been handling this war, in his public statements and just in general, his general approach is, is he he lacks any empathy for the families of the kidnapped. There's clear disarray in his cabinet. And he clearly is interested in in, in himself and his legacy and also in trying to save whatever is left of his political career. So there's just like every day there's different, uh, you know, news pieces here about how he's already trying to put blame on others in the security establishment, or he's trying to show that the kind of the movement to refuse to serve in the reservist duty before, you know, during the protests are a reason why Hamas saw us as weak. And so he's really just kind of very explicitly interested more in his own career right now than in the stability of the country. Uh, so Israelis are really, you know, up in arms about it. And they're not sure how to get him out of there.
2: You know, you alluded to this a bit, but obviously Netanyahu had some role in helping entrench Hamas in, in Gaza to this point. And now that this attack has happened, and as you said, there's this public push for ejecting Hamas from Gaza one way or another, you know, the war started. But it's interesting, I, I'm curious your take, how much had Israel prepared for this conflict? And we talk about the price that people are sort of girding themselves to pay. Uh, have they gamed out what that may look like or what people might find acceptable? We're about a month into the war. And I think that uh, on the Palestinian side, they estimate about 10,000 dead. And the Israeli side, I think several dozen soldiers have been killed in the war so far. Um, is, given how deeply entrenched Hamas is and how much, you know, there could be a high price, is there a limit to what people are willing to tolerate? Or, you know, is there even sort of a game plan for what they expect to happen going forward?
3: Right, well, I assume when you say they, you mean the decision-makers, because...
2: Yeah, I mean, the Israeli government, and then corresponding to that, the public, in terms of uh, limits they may expect, and what becomes intolerable in a conflict.
3: I mean, there's several things to unpack here. I think you know, the public right now, it, it it's just kind of bracing itself. It doesn't really know what what's going to happen. And obviously, soldiers, you know, are paying the price with their lives. And Israelis across much of the country are not able to function as normally because of the rocket sirens. I think that, you know, Israelis are willing to kind of continue to be in this mode for quite a while if it means that at the end of it, they'll have security. But I think they're not convinced and nobody can guarantee that they will have that security. And so I think the real problem is that the government, I don't think, knows exactly what is going to happen the day after Hamas is deposed. And I also don't think that it's clear that it knows how to depose Hamas, even though it is clearly explicitly very dedicated and determined to do so. But you know, as you said, Hamas is entrenched in, in Palestinian society and in Gaza specifically. And of course, you know, it's the tools that it uses are not all legitimate. And and, and the Hamas attack on October seventh was, I mean, it I, it definitely you know it's war crimes, crimes against humanity, could even qualify as as attempted genocide as well under international law. But in Israel, all of that overshadows the fact that there, a, it does have, it is a political movement. It has a political strategy. It's not it's not just that it's an irrational actor, right? And, and also that the Palestinian people on a whole have a liberation struggle. And that's something that Hamas is a part of. And so even if you get rid of Hamas, you don't get rid of the need to resist occupation or the desire to have political independence and self-determination. And these are all things that I don't think the Israeli uh, public or the government is really, you know, considering right now. It's not something that is, is at all on, on their agenda, you know? So as far as like, The day after, I think Israel has no good options and it's not really preparing for that. I think right now it's just completely in a mode of trying to get the military to achieve specific goals. And I think that, you know, it's already had to walk back or walk down the tree that it climbed when it said that it's going to destroy Hamas completely because it's just not necessarily going to work that way. And in terms of like the way that the war is developing, Israel keeps saying it's going to take months and months and it's going to be very long but i don't know if israel has all that time because of the humanitarian toll in gaza because of us pressure because of the regional threat there's just a lot of different factors that are you know playing a role in this and and i think time is not on israel's side so we'll have to see how how that develops
2: so you know given netanyahu's you know collapse in popularity following this attack and given the failures that led up to it are there other actors in the political, Israeli political spectrum which, who may be more empowered going forward? I guess it's still early to say, but are there more conciliatory factor, uh, parties who may benefit from his uh, decline? Or is it more likely that Israeli politics you think will shift more to the right uh, in the wake of the trauma of the October 7th attacks themselves?
3: I, I think the long term effects are harder to understand. I think there will be, you know, new and different energies and movements that come up as a result of what happened. But in the shorter term and medium term, I think Israel definitely will move further to the right um, I think even for, for most people, this was proof that Hamas is not an actor that you can negotiate with, or that you can get anywhere with, that it wasn't really interested in governing Gaza, which is true. I don't think it is interested in governing Gaza. And I think this attack serves its goal of being pushed out of governance, and returning to its, you know, roots as a, as a resistance guerrilla, you know, underground type group. But um, there's nobody in Israeli leadership today that that has a different approach on Hamas or really on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict that has any power. But even those who don't really have much power, there's no alternative. So even if Netanyahu were to step aside, uh, there's nobody who would provide an alternative. I mean, there are people who are considered more trustworthy, like Benny Gantz, or maybe a little bit less, you know, less corrupt, maybe more moderate. Although, you know, a lot of the uh, the people around netanyahu and also benny gantz who has joined this narrow war cabinet are not necessarily you know more moderate when it comes to military strategy uh, in gaza so, you know, in the same way that a lot of people talk about how the PA is, is defunct and illegitimate, I think in Israel, you have a real crisis of government and leadership as well. Or um, even if you held elections today, there would not necessarily be a much different outcome. And I think Israelis really are are at a loss for how to proceed. And there is a tiny minority of people who are either on the left or people from the South who have gone through so many rounds of violence with Gaza, they understand that Israel's policies have not worked. And they also understand that the more people you kill, the more hate and you know, retribution you, you cause. So I think there is an understanding amongst a small population that there needs to be a political solution to this issue, that it can't be a military solution. But that's, you know, a tiny minority and they don't have political representation.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news.
2: You mentioned the military strategy in Gaza as well, too, and the sort of uniformity among different players. You know, In the run-up to the military attack on Gaza, there were some very shocking statements from some Israeli military and political officials about what their intentions were for the campaign. I think there was one minister who said that they would turn Gaza into a city of tents, and uh, recently... Another minister in Netanyahu's government said, mused about using nuclear weapons against Gazans, things which suggest a very, very extreme sort of uh, anger and uh, lack of distinguishment between Hamas and Gazan civilians. Can you talk a bit about what could ensue in Gaza in terms of humanitarian toll? I think to date, we have about 10,000 people who've died there, but the military campaign is still in a very early days. And given these statements and some uh, Israeli military conduct, how bad could it theoretically get in the months ahead?
3: I mean, again, that's a question of how the U.S. and international actors might put pressure on Israel. But I do think that as far as Israel's approach, it feels like it's doing what it needs to do. It's telling Gazans to evacuate and to move south. Many of them have. Some don't want to, some can't. There's obviously complexity in in demanding that so many people move in an already closed and condensed place. But, you know, I, I think on this issue, you know, there's no way to kind of wage the kind of war that Israel is waging in Gaza without killing a lot of civilians and destroying a lot of civilian infrastructure. It's just not something that's really possible. And that's, you know, that's just how it is. So, you know, as far as Israel is concerned, it needs to target Hamas uh, infrastructure and officials. And I'm sure it's, you know, very plausible that Hamas officials are embedded in civilian uh, areas with civilians. So as far as Israel is concerned, that's just part of the war. So that's kind of the status quo uh, right now. And I think the international community and, and as we're seeing across Western cities, I mean, people are 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 demanding a ceasefire. And I don't think that Israel can continue on this path much longer in this way. But, you know, it all depends. I mean, if Israel can, you know, feel like it has achieved uh, gains, and if in the next, you know, few days or weeks, it's able to show some kind of progress that would allow it to feel like it could reach a negotiation, then I I assume it might do that. At this point, it doesn't feel that way. And it's not being pressured to call for a ceasefire. So there's a lot of different, you know, factors involved in that. But I think it's it's clear to everybody the humanitarian toll on Gaza. And this is one in a long series of humanitarian tolls on Gaza. The problem is that, you know, the international community, as much as it's trying to push for the humanitarian aid, it's also, it's not really able to come up with a plan for the political solution. Because that's really the issue here, that Gaza is not just a humanitarian issue, it's a political issue.
2: You know, at this moment when the Israeli military is going into Gaza and you have the sense of heightened crisis what role do you think the U.S. could play constructively? Because right now they're giving effectively a blank check to the Israeli military with uh, very few, if any, red lines on their response. Do you think that this is constructive, or is it sort of giving the Israeli government a moral hazard to do things which may be not just harmful to Palestinians, but also to its own interests?
3: Yeah, I think what we're seeing is very clearly, you know, is a failure of the U.S. to create a situation that is, safe and that can save lives because it's not calling for a ceasefire. And this is not just a failure of the moment, but it's also a failure of years of of policies that have enabled Israel to reach this moment of, of hubris, of just like this notion that it's invincible and that it can do as it pleases. And the U.S. has the leverage and has the power to constrain Israel. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways it's trying to do that, but it's clearly not succeeding at doing it and there's something about the way that the US has positioned itself, which is is very clearly, again, like giving Israel the legitimacy to destroy Hamas, but without really thinking through what that means, how effective that can be. And also the US, you know, is trying to de-escalate, I think, and and prevent a regional war from happening. But in some ways, the way that it has provided Israel with weapons and with support could also drive Israel's adversaries in Lebanon and Iran to hype up the situation rather than be deterred. So the U.S. is kind of trying to play it both ways. It's saying we need to prevent humanitarian catastrophe, but we also need to destroy Gaza. And so I don't think it completely uh, understands how to handle that. And, And at this point, Israel is kind of just is doing what it what it needs to do, what it feels that it needs to do.
2: In the early weeks of the conflict, there was a leaked document from the Israeli Ministry of Intelligence that talked about the possibility of transferring Gazans to Sinai Peninsula. And last week, this was followed up by a report in the New York Times, which seemed to echo that uh, uh, report, claiming that uh, Israeli officials had talked to Egyptian officials, trying to put pressure on them to accept such an outcome. You know, previous rounds of conflict in Israel-Palestine, since the establishment of the State of Israel, have resulted in these uh, mass displacements of Palestinians, either to other countries in the region or other parts of what was the province of Palestine uh, prior to the creation of Israel. Can you talk a bit about why Israeli officials might want to push Gazans to Sinai and why Palestinians may be particularly resistant to that sort of outcome, even if in the short term it may protect them from uh, dying in an Israeli military assault?
3: I think it's important to keep like two things in mind. One, there are ex- there's extremely ex- genocidal language and rhetoric coming out of certain people in Israeli government and also far right think tanks and all kinds of you know various people uh, of more or less influence in Israel who very clearly want to push Palestinians out of Gaza also of the West Bank they would prefer to see them all leave and go to Jordan to Egypt i've spoken to plenty of you know settlers who believe that they should be encouraged to emigrate and if they don't want to emigrate then they need to be pushed out by force i mean so this is something that exists in israeli society it's it's not it's not necessarily on the on the margins it is extreme But it's not necessarily something that I think Israel's decision makers are going to try to implement or that they could even if they wanted to. At the same time, I think in this specific uh, war and this specific operation, there is a desire clearly on some level for Gazans to evacuate the Gaza Strip because then Israel has, you know, more freedom to kind of do what it feels it needs to do in Gaza without hurting civilians. So ideally, I guess, for Israel, um, you know, the majority of the population, the civilian population, women and children, would be able to go into Sinai uh, for a period of time um, and then come back. But from what we know of history and from what we know of Israeli policies, it's it's very understandable that Palestinians don't believe that they'll be able to come back to those places. Um, and it's also, you know, very difficult to ask somebody to leave their home you know regardless so i you know i think in the same way israel is not necessarily interested for its own interests economic military that to, to reoccupy gaza for example i don't think it's interested in putting settlements back into gaza even though again there are people on the right who want that and who say that but I don't think that that's its plan. I do think it will probably have to, you know, have some kind of temporary occupation or presence in Gaza, which you kind of can already see now, in order to, you know, regain security control. So it's, you know, it's a little bit more nuanced. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, regardless of what we think, you can see that Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank are being pushed out of their homes. And in some cases, you know, they're they're not able to come back. So, Uh, that's just a reality. And it's not, you know, it's not extreme to say that there are Israeli policies that are, you know, continuing a line from 1948, which is that we want this area to be for Jews and not for Palestinians.
2: Yeah, I want to ask you a bit about the West Bank as well, too. You wrote recently that more than 120 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank by Israeli soldiers and settlers since October 7th, And I think that number has even gone up since then. Obviously, in the West Bank, the Hamas is not the ruling party, but there's still this very extreme uptick in uh, violence targeting Palestinians. Can you talk a bit about conditions there and how they've deteriorated over the last month?
3: Yeah, so the West Bank has already been experiencing, you know, one of the most deadliest years for Palestinians since the Second Intifada. Um, A lot of IDF raids, search and arrest operations that often end with shootings and uh, killings of Palestinians. And then you have settler violence, which is something that has also been around for a long time and has gone up steadily every year. And then this year, especially, it's also at unprecedented numbers, and the, you know the UN has been following that quite closely, and there's a few Israeli human rights organizations that also follow it. Um, and basically, since October 7th, you've had a combination of, um, I think, Israeli settlers and soldiers who feel, you know, vengeful and are able to take out their anger on Palestinians in various ways. In addition to what is already a very kind of calculated campaign to force Palestinian communities out of out of their homes, this is something that uh, has been documented very very well over the last few months. And then we've seen an uptick since October seventh. And and basically, uh, the IDF now all of the mandatory you know service soldiers are in the south or in the north. And so what you have in the West Bank right now mostly are reservist soldiers. Um, some of them are not that familiar with the situation in the West Bank. And as in a general rule, soldiers you know, feel that their job is to protect uh, Israelis and not Palestinians. So there's plenty of times where soldiers will see something happening, see a settler harassing or or assaulting a Palestinian and and do nothing about it or actually arrest the Palestinian and not the Israeli settler. So there's all kinds of situations like that. And with all eyes on Gaza and with so much of the efforts and forces and, and attention on Gaza, then the people in the West Bank who are extremely radical and who want to take up every hilltop and kick Palestinians out are now doing so with even more impunity and more free reign than ever before. There's just like a horrible record of Israeli police and soldiers uh, detaining, arresting, charging or convicting settlers for assaulting Palestinians. And so even though there's warnings about how the West Bank could erupt in violence if this continues, for some reason, nobody in the government is doing anything about it.
2: You know, it's interesting. I noticed recently that the head of the Shin Bet, Israel's internal security service, warned about the impact of this potential settler violence, and specifically said it could lead to an explosion in the West Bank, which is describing the situation where the Israeli military seems very stretched on multiple fronts, first in Gaza, obviously, then in the north, near the Lebanese border to deter Hezbollah, and then in the West Bank, where they're controlling millions and millions of Palestinians under military occupation. Can you talk about what what would the impact be if there were an explosion of violence? What is the head of the Shin Bet really referring to? And how would that impact Israel strategically, especially given the fact that still the risk of a regional war spreading as well, too?
3: I think probably what he means is that Palestinians will start to rise up more. He could mean a third intifada. He could also mean just like a lot more instances in which Israeli civilian settlers uh, are armed and shooting at Palestinians, and then Palestinians are trying to protect themselves and, you know, in whatever way possible, uh, attack back. And so then you start to have these kind of militias who are just, you know, going around and attacking people. And that would just cause complete chaos and havoc. So, you know, there's different scenarios for for how the West Bank would explode, but you know, it's already in an explosive situation. And the government and the people who are running the West Bank, specifically uh el Smotrich, I mean, they just very openly and explicitly seek to annex the West Bank, seek to formalize Israel's control there, especially in Area C of the West Bank, which is 60% of the West Bank, where all the settlements are. They, you know they have all these clear intentions, and so in some ways they're able now to implement them even more. While this stuff is happening in Gaza, and the security establishment is not is not stopping it, and so you know it it makes no sense in Israeli security interests to allow this to happen because then it really will be overstretched, and it really will have a lot more problems on its hands. So I don't you know I don't really understand what 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 the strategy is there, to be frank.
2: You know, you mentioned earlier that there is a small but quite vocal human rights community in Israel, uh, more left-leaning. And there was an interesting guest essay in the New York Times last week by Michael Svard, an Israeli human rights lawyer. And he said something very interesting. He said that in light of recent events, there's been an active suppression of speech of internal critics of the government inside Israel. And obviously, we see in different countries when there's a security crisis, people who are trying to talk about civil liberties and human rights come under greater pressure. And even before October 7th, there was that pressure in Israel. Can you talk about how that may have increased or what's happened since then uh, in terms of pressure on Israelis not to express dissent over government policy in the West Bank and Gaza?
3: This is something that happens after every kind of Gaza war, but now it's like even more on steroids where uh, Israelis who want to protest against the war or protest in solidarity with the people of Gaza are silenced. Or sometimes there's like far right activists, thugs, whatever you want to call them, that come and kind of attack the protest. That happened a lot in 2014. There's also, you know, just like this... Um, This phenomenon of of, you know anybody who kind of speaks out um, against the war in any in any way, not even specifically saying oh we need a ceasefire or anything, just any kind of um, expression is is being kind of censored or silenced. And and we're seeing that specifically now with social media posts by Palestinian citizens of Israel. I've seen, you know, I've seen reports of people being detained uh, for a post with a Palestinian flag from years ago. There's teachers in various uh, colleges and schools here who have been suspended for a social media post that Israel uh, claims is can be understood as supporting Hamas. Um, so, you know, the The restriction on on free speech just goes way up during wartime. And so that's something that we're seeing. And then as far as Jewish Israelis, you know, I, I think it's very difficult for them to be able to articulate their opposition to the war. Like, you don't really have protests now that are calling for a ceasefire or opposed to the war you really have just the families of the hostages calling for a hostage release that's really what's dominating kind of the public arena right now and it's very difficult for israelis to express themselves it doesn't mean that there isn't any of that there is and even some of the victims in the south uh, some of them are you know pretty well known peace activists and they've been advocating for a cessation of the hostilities but again they have no you know they have no influence and no power but the police, for example, have been very kind of explicit about the fact that they're not going to really tolerate any kind of protests that identify with Gaza. Um, so there's places like uh, Haifa and Umar Fakhim and different areas, Palestinian citizens of Israel who who are not really able to you know have their protests because the police basically just said that they're going to shut it down.
2: It'll be difficult to answer this question until the war is over. But I was curious, you know, Merav, of giving your take on what the long-term outcome of this conflict could be. Obviously, before the conflict, there was still a very dire situation in the West Bank and Gaza, not a very clear political horizon. But now that this war started and the October 7th attacks have happened, you know, it's brought up the Palestinian question again, internationally at least, and said, well, you know, is there a possible way that this could end still with the creation of Palestinian state or, you know, more remotely, maybe a binational state? I'm curious what what do you think is realistic or what do you think is possible given the Israeli public sentiment after this events that you know could lead to a political change in the future or is it narrow the window for that to happen?
3: I mean I, I I think that the stakes are extremely high right now and both peoples I think feel that they're in existential crisis so that could lead us into a worse place, but it could also create opportunities and especially, because the israeli leadership is so broken that could lead to eventual openings of you know political renewal and of course the palestinians also have been you know desperate for political renewal so you know if you look at the history of of israeli relations with arab countries and the peace treaties with egypt and jordan um and also the oslo accords even which happened after the first intifada there's always kind of like violence and 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 war and and things like that that happen before an opportunity arises for uh peace accords or for something that is uh you know different so my hope is that the kind of shattering of a lot of the previous concepts and the shattering of security and the realization for israelis that they they can't just build walls and think that that will provide safety will open up uh, the possibility for a political framework. But it's very hard to see that now with the government in place. It's hard to see that because of years of American foreign policy that refused to push for that direction and to make Israel kind of pay a price for some of its policies. But I do think that, you know, you hit rock bottom and then there are opportunities to try and, and open things up. And I, I I do think that what happened on October 7th made very clear that Israel cannot win by might. You know, I don't know if that's something that the decision makers are ready to accept. But I think even after whatever they are able to achieve in this war, they're still going to have to come back to politics and diplomacy. There's just no other way to deal with it. You know, they you know, they can't kill all the Palestinians, and Hamas can't kill all the Israelis, and it's just not, they're all going to still be here when this is over. So they're going to have to figure out a way to move forward. But that might take, you know, a, a long time, and a lot more uh, push from the from each public for that to happen.
2: So Mirav, obviously, whenever there's a conflict in Israel-Palestine, it, it heightens people's emotions, not just in the region, but globally. And we've seen these big protests in the U.S. and Europe in recent weeks. And also alongside that, we've seen this increase of hate crimes, some of them targeting uh, Arabs or Muslims, but also a great increase in anti-Semitic hate crimes as well, too. Can you t- talk a bit about how you know people may be feeling who are Jewish globally or in Israel and how in, in any way, if perhaps the conflict may be contributing also to the sentiments of insecurity or a fear that some Jewish people are feeling as a result of these uh, heightened social sentiments.
3: Yeah, so I've kind of, as much as it's been horrible here on the ground, it's also been horrible to see what's happening kind of on social media and, and the disinformation and the way people are really, you know, going into their silos and kind of, incapable of showing uh, humanity for the other side. And I think, you know, years and years of Israeli policies and Israeli impunity and the West allowing and enabling Israel to do that has created a lot of anger, justifiably, amongst Palestinian, Arab, Muslim, and also left and progressive circles around the world. And so this is kind of the straw that broke the back in many ways. Um, But because of the, you know, severity and intensity of the Hamas attack, and because there's, like, women and children being held in Gaza, there's, you know, this feeling like the people who are calling, you know, for a free Palestine, who are calling for Israel to finally be held to account, are not capable of also understanding the very real victimhood of Israelis right now. And and so the dehumanization that we've seen for so many years of Palestinians and we're still seeing um, in so many different ways, even like the doubting of the numbers of the people who are being killed in Gaza because Hamas controls the health ministry. All these, you know, horrible manifestations of dehumanization of Palestinians, I think, in some ways, making it very difficult for many people to also empathize and, and humanize uh, Israeli victims of this attack. So it's something that I think has just accumulated for many, many years. And also Israel, as uh, as a Jewish state, as the representative of Jews around the world, has spoken for Jews in many, many ways and has, in you know, has been a major factor in American domestic politics for a long time now, in a way that when Israel, Israel does something. Jews are affected in different parts of the world. Now, that's not Israel's fault per se, but I would say that Israel is responsible for the fact that it claims to act uh, on behalf of Jews around the world when many, many Jews are either anti-Zionists or who are not interested or who don't identify with it. And so you're seeing like a real big kind of backlash from years and years of Israel acting in ways that are clearly not in the interests of many Jewish people And I would say even more so that Israel's, you know, raison d'etre following World War II and the Holocaust was to provide a safe haven for Jews, and even that it's having a hard time doing, you know, for various reasons. So this is something I think that is making Jews feel very insecure, and I can say that me personally, I'm somebody who hasn't really experienced anti-Semitism in my life, and I feel like now more than ever— there is a real fear of anti-Semitism around the world. And of course, you know, the same goes for Islamophobia, which is something that we've seen over and over again in 9-11 and in various different ways. So, so what's happening on the ground is really, I think, when we call for a ceasefire, I think it's not only in the interests of the lives of, of people in Gaza, but also because of the violence that this could and it already is triggering around the world.
2: Mirav, thanks for joining us on Intercepted today.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: That was Merav Zonshine, an Israeli-American journalist and a senior analyst on Israel-Palestine at the International Crisis Group. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted.
1: Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is the lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. Legal Review was done by David David Brelo. this episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you want to support our work, you can go to
2: theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the size, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating and review wherever you find our podcasts. It helps other listeners to find us as well.
1: You can also give us additional feedback if you so desire. You can email us at podcasts at theintercept.com or you can find us on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days at at Intercepted. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussain.